The book of Isaiah is not the work of just one writer. Begun in the 8th century before the Common Era, the opening chapters of Isaiah condemn the Israelites with harsh words, linking their aspirations for personal liberty, their love of money, and the social and economic injustices within their community as causing the crumbling of life within Jerusalem. In very sophisticated poetry, he accuses them of individual and collective sins of having turned away from God. The Assyrians seized on their weakened state and exiled the Israelites to Babylon. In the final chapters of Isaiah, in the short portion from our lectionary reading for today, were written in the sixth century before the Common Era, almost 200 years after that first writer began. Only now the writer is preparing these generations to return to their home and return to their love of God. After all the violence, Isaiah now imagines their future, one of harmony, with phrases that we hear during Advent and Christmas of lamb and lion laying down together and the arrival of a savior. Listen for what Isaiah tells them to remember about God and what they are to do as I read from this portion. But first, let's please invite the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that we are unable to save ourselves and at each time we try, we fail. Have mercy on us. Be the strength in our weakness, clear our heads of foolishness of believing that we can be our own gods. Steer our hearts to utter dependence on you. And speak to us now through these ancient words of the prophet that we might rise and lead lives offered in pure gratitude for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear these words from the 44th chapter of Isaiah. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your seed and my blessing on your offspring. They shall spring up among the grasses like willows by the flowing streams. One will say, I am the Lord's, and another will be called by the name of Jacob. And yet another will write, the Lord, on his hand and adopt the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me, let him call it out. Let him tell it and lay it before me. For who has announced from of old the things that will come? Let them tell what is yet to be, and they can't. Do not fear, do not tremble. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. There is no other rock. I know of not one. Here ends our reading. Now, I've told some stories before, but after 20 years of working in corporations, I then went to Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and one of the most liberating aspects of going to school was the diverse student body. Not even as an undergraduate long ago at Virginia Tech did I encounter such a variety of ages, ethnicities, languages spoken, and imaginations thinking of things. The other startling visual reminder that, quote, this is not your corporate world were the number of tattoos that I saw. We started school in the warm summer and those bare arms and legs of summer shorts and sandals exposed skin and body art that I had never witnessed before. 
You see, I was accustomed to walking in conference rooms and offices filled with suited folks who looked just like me. You might remember the days of Dress for Success, and this freedom quite candidly shocked me. Now, I was the old person on campus, but how was I ever going to fit in? And then I felt free in ways that I'd never imagined, and I began to see people with a whole new way. At school, no one seemed to care what you looked like. Your ideas, it was your ideas, it was your critical thinking, your passion, your dreams. That's what's mattered. How were you going to live with your life by what you thought, and how were you going to live your life to your dreams? Swift Hall, which was the home of the Divinity School, was filled with PhD students of all faith traditions and many with no faith tradition. And there were just a relatively few of us that were there because we aspired to serve Jesus in ministry. In one class that I had on the Book of Job, I sat next to a PhD candidate in literature. And with this young man, I got to trading notes. I got from him tips about the papers that were due. And then later learned that he really had no interest in religion. One day, my curiosity won out, and I actually asked what was inked on the top of his foot. I could see that there was this dense tattoo, but I couldn't make it out, and I wasn't getting close to his foot. His face softened to a smile, and he said, It's the last line of Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road. Do you know it? Well, yes, I replied. It had won the Pulitzer, and I had read it, and then all of a sudden fear crept into my mind because I was afraid he would query me on some obtuse aspect of this dense post-apocalyptic novel, and this guy was wicked smart, and he wanted to know what you thought. Now, The Road chronicles a future time in which a father leads his son to safety and to find, quote-unquote, the other good guys because their country lay in ruin from disease and an environmental meltdown, and there were savages that would murder anyone that came across them. Towards the end of the novel, after so much death, the son sits for three days to grieve. And then he rises, and he does find a band of good guys to join. And the story closes with an image of a mountain trout whose bodies were patterned with a map of the world at its beginning. And the final line reads, and this is what was tattooed on his foot. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. Now my seatmate had shared enough of his life story to have hinted at devastating loss. And he admired McCarthy's talent to confront the horrors we can make of our world and our individual lives, and yet still look for signs of resurrection bound in a mystery, tattooed on the back of a trout, and something that will endure that even we cannot destroy. One day he aspired to write with such stirring clarity and compel someone else to look for hope amidst ruin. So write it on your hand, write it on your foot, write it into your being. People have inked their bodies or worn emblems throughout time with images and ideas that reveal what they've endured and where they want to go. These images identify themselves to us. Now, trauma theorists will tell us that one of the essential steps for trauma victims is to repair their shattered identity. From fragments of their former life, they are to remember who they were before the pain so they can create a narrative that endures and helps them begin again. Now, thinking of our story from today, 
one would think that the quest to become independent and move away from relying upon the community would make you stronger. And yet the Israelites' trauma began as they were celebrating their self-sufficiency, their wealth, their lives, and ignored the needs of others around them. They started out on what became a very slippery slope to the bottom. The simple act of forgetting who they were and to whom they belonged weakened them individually and as a people. It led to their demise at the hands of the Assyrians and having to leave their home for almost 200 years. This was a self-inflicted trauma. During their exile, fear became the ingrained way of life. Fear of what's next, fear of the stranger, and very likely it was an anxiety about their ability to restore a community that would survive any future threats. You see, survivors who have endured the loss of everything but life itself learn to harden themselves against the dangerous sound of hope. They learn not to trust the lies of others, but can they trust the promises of God? Isaiah speaks for God, do not be afraid. Again, do not be afraid and do not tremble. God turns them towards life by promising this generation they will have future generations to flourish. I will pour out my spirit on your seed and my blessing on your offspring. Clinging to that hope, one man takes a new yet ancient Hebrew name, Jacob. Yet another writes the Lord on his hand, and he writes the Lord to remind him of the first command. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other God before me. God alone is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, as a writer of Revelation will express centuries later. And then Isaiah has a series of rhetorical questions asked on behalf of God of who can you really trust? And it ends with, is there any other rock? Can you find any other sure foundation on this earth, the earth that God alone created? Is there any place or any person on whom you can stake your life that will not shift from underneath you? And the answer is a simple no. God is the rock, steadfast, unchanging, and when you begin life anew, build on this rock of your foundation, and that is always God. Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus fulfills the long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah promises. Jesus heals, Jesus teaches, and Jesus saves. He knew joy and celebrated feasts. He promised to give us life and life abundant. And he also experienced temptation, suffering, breathed the death of those who died that he loved. There is no aspect of life, no pain, no suffering, no loss, not even the grave, that he has not endured himself. So when we seek to repair our broken lives, he is the one to guide our steps, and nothing, nothing but the goal of love is his. When we write on our hands or we hang a cross around our neck or etch it into our hearts the image of Jesus, we remind ourselves that we are to love one another. Now there is a downside to following Jesus's examples. All of those attachments that we thought defined who we are and those desires that ordered our life will be exposed as only consuming us and not giving us life. The lives of those who apprenticed themselves to Jesus were characterized as confronting the accepting norms and not supporting them. Jesus' followers don't always fit in, 
but they always fit close to God. How we live each day witnesses to the God we worship, and our lives are always the final answer of who we think God is. Now, Mary Daniel is the chief executive of a small company that helps patients with health care bills. At age 57 and with such professional accomplishments, she never thought she would return to an entry-level, unskilled job again. But her husband of 24 years, Steve, now resides in a memory care facility near their home due to advancing Alzheimer's. After he moved in, Mary visited each evening to help him get ready for bed and remain with him until he fell asleep. She wanted to be his wife in as many ways as she still could. But on March 11th, she learned, as so many others, that the health risks of COVID required that all visits cease immediately. She was never allowed to visit him again, and it felt akin to exile. Now, Mary tried to, quote unquote, see Steve through the window, but it caused her anxiety, and he cried. So not denying the deadly nature of COVID and the need to shelter residents from infection, she relentlessly pursued some other type of access, and an idea struck. She interviewed. She completed the drug tests, a COVID test, and took a part-time job in the facility. And after 114 days of separation, she now washes dishes, scrubs the grill, and mops the floors. And when she finishes her shift, she may see Steve. She can greet him, she can touch him, and she can hold him. In her choice of life after devastation, she became a servant to work on behalf of someone else's benefit. Her work witnesses to a love that is stronger than disease, a love that is stronger than pride, a love that is flourishing in community, and her shriveled hands and weary feet witness to living a life with hope. May it be so for us, my friends. May it be so.